As the case has been already today, what a privilege and a joy it is for us to be able to come together tonight. So many of our brethren around the world so struggle in order to just find a safe haven in which they can meet to worship, and yet we have the comfortable and friendly confines of this structure. And what a blessing indeed it is that God has been so good to us. As these songs that we've just sung and the prayer in which we've just engaged together collectively have perhaps prepared us to engage in a consideration of the God's holy word tonight, we'll continue our series of studies in the book of 2 Samuel. As an introductory or preparatory slide may remind us, this book of 2 Samuel has been and continues to be the one that our youngsters are preparing for as they eagerly anticipate the Bible Bowl. And we have engaged in a series of studies on this very noble and sacred book of the Old Testament, certainly, as we have recognized some of the principal and grand ideas to be found within it. We saw, just to take a rather broad approach, the ascendancy of David through ten chapters of majesty, with God at his side and leading him onward. He reached the pinnacle and zenith of the characteristic of leadership, the king of Israel. However, he stumbled significantly in chapter 11, on which occasion the sins in which he engaged there were such that though God forgave him upon his penitence, he nonetheless would be such that the sword would never depart from his house. To that extent, we noticed what Nathan rather directly confronted him in chapter 12, saying, Thou art the man. And so in chapter 13, the tragedy of his own family, the suffering that they themselves endured, when in fact... Did we not appreciate Amnon's defilement of his own half-sister and then Absalom's slaying or murdering of Amnon? And following all of that, even Absalom taken into exile, fleeing for his own life from his father. That would not be the end of matters, for in chapter 14, as we saw last Lord's Day evening, the appreciation of that, the words of that wise woman of Tekoa, who, by virtue of Joab's scheming and planning, told a story to David, and he ultimately appreciated the thrust of it and brought Absalom back from exile, but he was still estranged from his father. There still was no ultimate harmony and peace between Absalom and David. At that point, chapter 14 closed, and we are prepared then to pick up our study tonight in the 15th chapter of 2 Samuel, and with the blessing of God in our favor, we'll look forward to discussing chapters 15 and 16 in our lesson this evening. In the 15th chapter of 2 Samuel, as we have done in the past, let's sketch the historical aspects of that chapter as well as the one that follows, and then return and look at some lessons that may be helpful or beneficial to you and me even today. And so as the 15th chapter opens, we immediately must confront, perhaps, the character and nature of this man named Absalom. He was the third oldest son of David, but what's more, we quickly have come to appreciate there were some lacking features in his character and in his countenance, just to name a few of them. He did have the audacity to murder his half-brother. He did have the audacity to rape his half-sister. He did have the audacity to burn Joab's field, and as we shall see tonight... He would even have the audacity to challenge and even openly attempt to remove his own father from the throne of Israel. Needless to say, he appeared to have a degree of disrespectfulness to his character as well as a rather brash and troublesome uh, characteristic associated with him. But that does begin to lead us into chapter 15, certainly. As the chapter opens... 
himself still being estranged from his father David. He seems to have been an individual somewhat bothered and greatly upset by that fact. And he has as his desire to ascend to the highest position of the empire himself. He devises a rather clever, a rather subtle scheme whereby that could be accomplished. This is the manner in which he pursued it. Given that David, as the king of Israel, was the one before whom civil matters were portrayed, that is to say, when parties had a disagreement, and when a decision of law had to be given, they would come to David and he would arbitrate it. Much like what we remember in the days of Solomon, when individuals needed a matter settled, they would bring the matter ultimately before Solomon. Well, similarly, such took place with regard to David. Day by day, as individuals would come to the city of Jerusalem and pass through the noble gates of that city and seek an appeasement or a meeting with David, Absalom devised the following plan. He would rise early in the morning and meet them as they came to the gate. As he shared with them and spoke with them, he would speak very favorably about their cause. Your cause is noble and just and right. And if the king is noble and wise, he will hear thee. But what's more, he went on to say, there is no one deputed of the king to hear your cause. If I were king, I would be honored to in fact hear your case and take care of it very quickly and nobly. In essence, he promised them exactly what they wanted to hear. He promised them justice and that immediately. And he promised them that there would be someone ever ready with a willing ear to hear their cause and to openly prescribe for them the thing for which they had desired. As day by day the matters passed, we quickly find in verse number 13 the following statement. This is the one that was read in their hearing just a few moments earlier. And there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. Absalom had won their hearts. He had very secretly gathered a following. He had never, of course, told his father about this plan of his. He rather secretly garnered the attention and gathered the things that would be the nobility and the characteristics of, of the people of Israel. Finally, their hearts were after Absalom. The time had ultimately come then when the situation unfolded in the following fashion. Absalom asked his father if, in fact, he could go and provide a vow or do the service of the vow he had made to God while he was in exile in Geshur. David, of course, granted him that permission and, in fact, even gave him his blessing to do so. It was not Absalom's plan, however, to go and perform a vow. When he left the nature of the kingdom there, the, the palace at Jerusalem, he rather went and desired himself to be proclaimed king in Hebron, David's former capital. When the time properly arrived, Absalom came to that place, and the following statement is made also in 2 Samuel, the 15th chapter. Verse number 10. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. He planned by secrecy, deceit, and trickery to elevate himself by garnering the attention of Israel to make himself king, despite the fact his own father was currently reigning in Jerusalem. The scenes of which we have just read came about exactly as he had planned. He, in fact, did leave his father. He was proclaimed king there at Hebron. 
we shall have to ask in the course of our study, was it a long-lived reign? Did he, in fact, ultimately arrive at what he had hoped? The absolute fullness of the kingship? Or was it sufficiently short-lived that his conspiracy finally failed? Beginning in verse number 13. Once word came to David as to what Absalom had done, that he had proclaimed himself king and that Israel was proceeding to follow and their hearts had been captured, David fled the capital city. Here was the king now placed on the run by his own son. Almost unbelievable, isn't it? Here was David, who himself was the sweet singer of Israel, 2 Samuel 23, 2. He was the very one who, earlier in his life, was described in these words, a man after God's own heart. And now his own son has sent him on the run, fleeing for his life from the capital city. His own words are, in fact, as follows in verse number 14. David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to a depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. David was fearful of what might happen from the hand of his own son. Would that not be a very fearful thing for a parent to live in a circumstance like that? To be afraid of what your own child, your own son or daughter might do to you? David and his servants fled the city. As they did so, the only ones left behind in verse 16 were ten concubines to keep the house. As the chapter continues to unfold before us, in verse number 19, while he was leaving, another gentleman proceeded to leave with him, and David questioned this gentleman about himself and his leaving. That gentleman was a person named Itai. Itai was a very interesting person from this perspective. He had only recently become a proselyte or had moved to the capital city. And now, David questions, You have only been very recently amongst our number. Why are you now choosing to leave with us? You have not come to a position, perhaps, of knowing the loyalty that should follow this very difficult and arduous journey. Itai, though, made a very beautiful statement. I'd ask that you note it with me as Itai responded in this way. Verse number 21. And Itai answered the king and said, As the Lord liveth, and as my Lord the king liveth, surely in what place my Lord the king shall be, whether in life or death, even there also will thy servant be. Itai professed a very loyal and beautiful allegiance to the king, to King David understanding that whether or not my life is taken from me, whether or not I shall be in difficult, perilous circumstances, I shall be by your side, if we may paraphrase the statement that Itai made. That very pressing and powerful matter led David to invite Itai to come with him. As the chapter proceeds onward from there, in verse number 24, we can see a very touching scene in a way. As David fled the capital city, Notice what began to be taken with him. And lo, Zadok also and all the Levites were with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until the, all the people had done passing out of the city. The priests, the, those who were appreciative of the significance of the ark of the covenant and that which was located within it, even the ark began to be taken and was to be used to follow David in that entourage. 
However, David recognized something more powerful and something more grand in nature. I'd invite you to note that statement as well. When David began to see the ark was being carried and followed, here's his remark. Verse number 25, And the king said unto Zadok, Carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he thus say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. A majestic recognition of the providence of God. Zadok, take back the ark. Its rightful place is in that tabernacle which has been positioned for it. God will take care of me. If it be his will to bring me back again, I shall see both it and the habitation in which it dwells. But if not, let the will of the Lord be done. That statement alone is such a touching reflection on the kind of person that David had once been and what he had now seemingly returned to be after his repentance over those acts of sinfulness that we had seen in chapter 11. After that being said, we encounter yet another set of individuals before the chapter closes. Perhaps it would be of interest to us to observe the very touching scene of verse 30. On that occasion, as David departs the city... May we not forget, even as we had studied last Lord's Day morning, on the very nature of our Lord's trek to Gethsemane and the scene in which He had ultimately found Himself crucified at the hands of the authorities of that day, that beautiful place wherein the Garden of Gethsemane was located was Mount, the Mount of Olives. If you and I were to be asked, what was that hill that David ascended as he fled from Absalom? It was none other than the Mount of Olives. Perhaps our Lord found himself in a similar position to where David had been a thousand years earlier. As he himself fled from his own son, our Lord was fleeing. Was he not from the great tempest of that day to find some solace of that night prior to his crucifixion? It is an amazing thing to consider the nature of how God brought his providence to bear. And many things took place at similar locations in the times of the Bible. Beginning in verse 31, another piece of distressing news was given to David. It's almost as though one were making certain that things were as bad as possible. Not only was he on the run from his son, he now is informed that one of the conspirators is one of his chief advisors, one of his principal counselors. It would almost be today as if one of the cabinet members of the president switched political parties and became the chief defense person for the next president who was of a different political party. Ahithophel was one of David's trusted counselors and advisors and yet he had chosen to pursue now the following of Absalom. The words of verse 31 are ever powerful indeed. Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. One of the briefer prayers in the Old Testament, admittedly. But David beseeched God to turn the counsel of Ahithophel not into wisdom and not into effectiveness, but rather into foolishness. In the verses that follow, David reached the pinnacle of the Mount of Olives. And as he reached that location... Might we observe interestingly that another individual met him, a person named Hushai. 
Hushai, it seems, was in a very quick way desiring to find his way to the location which he now found himself meeting David. And as he did so, David had a request. Hushai first desired to come with David and follow with him just as Itai had asked. However, David asks a favor of him. David says, you will only add burdensome character to myself in this journey, but what great favor and aid you could be to me if you will return to Jerusalem and profess yourself loyal to Absalom. And by the trusted wisdom and the spying nature of your presence there, you can share with us wisdom and knowledge that we can use to defeat Ahithophel's council. In fact, that's what Hushai chose to do. Absalom welcomed him into the favor of the royal residence. And as the chapter closes, there were those now still in Jerusalem who could be David's eyes and who could share with him the wisdom he needed to help defeat the council of Ahithophel. Those in presence were Hushai, as well as the priest, Zadok, and Abiathar and their sons. With that said, the 15th chapter closes and the 16th chapter opens. As we consider the events of chapter 16, we are in a position of again noting David is on the run. Let's look, though, at the scenes that unfold in this chapter. We are first introduced again to an individual whom we have encountered previously, a gentleman named Ziba, who was, as we well remember, we remember, a person who was familiar with Mephibosheth and who brought David word of Mephibosheth earlier in our study of chapter 9. Ziba, beginning in verse number 1, came to David bearing great gifts. In fact, these are the gifts that he bore, verse number 1. And when David was a little past the top of the hill, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of asses saddled and upon them two hundred loaves of bread and a hundred bunches of raisins and a hundred of summer fruits and a bottle of wine. As these gifts were brought, David quickly inquired as to the reason for the gifts and Ziba responded that they are for you, David, and for your servants and for those who are with you in this fleeing from Jerusalem. As that information was given, Ziba, it seems, had something else in mind, however. His coming to David was covered with a bit of deceitfulness and with somewhat of an ulterior motive. In fact, verse number 3 says, And where is thy master's son? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he abideth at Jerusalem, for he said, Today shall the house of Israel restore me the kingdom of my father. When asked where Mephibosheth was, Ziba was quick to say, He is still at Jerusalem. He did not leave with the other entourage that followed you, David. He is awaiting for the returning of the fullness of his kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. That perhaps did not ring well in David's ears, for doesn't that indicate by the wording, at least by the way, that Ziba had said it, that Mephibosheth had now become loyal, not to David, but to Absalom. In response, verse number 4, David said, Then said the king to Ziba, Behold, thine are all that pertain unto Mephibosheth. And Ziba said, I humbly beseech thee that I may find grace in thy sight, my lord, O king. David thus blessed Ziba by giving him all that had formerly belonged to Mephibosheth. Later, we shall encounter this gentleman one more time in this noble book. We will find that yet again interesting things take place concerning Ziba 
and concerning the matters related to Mephibosheth. He was not entirely honest in what he had said here concerning Mephibosheth. That will come back to haunting him. Might we ever remember, even at this point, be sure thy sin will find you out, to quote Numbers 32, 23. As this chapter goes onward, we quickly learn that as David continues to flee, another rather interesting scene takes place. David, it seems, is walking along on what may be perceived as a valley. There's a hill on each side, and walking along on that hill, on one of those hillsides, is a gentleman named Shimei. Shimei was loyal to Saul and to his house. As David leaves, Shimei curses David. He, in fact, says ugly and awful things to him and even throws rocks and dust at him, all the while to heap more things upon him that would be, that would be disrespectful, to heap more things upon him that would only cloud the moment with greater injury to what David was now undergoing. As David thus flees the city, we can appreciate the power and perhaps the humiliating scene descriptive of this fleeing. But chapter 16 has even more for us to consider. Note with me the following. Absalom came to the throne. He did exactly what he had wished to do. His father had apparently abdicated. He had fled for his own life. Absalom usurped the throne. And rather amazingly, and also somewhat interestingly, Hushai's Though David had sent him back, Absalom welcomed him, began to place some confidence and trust in him. When Ahithophel was asked, What should I do to gain further the hearts and the character of the reign over Israel? Ahithophel's counsel was, Go into your father's concubines. A tent was erected upon the roof of the palace and in the open view of the public. Absalom went in to his father's concubines. A rather great statement of humility and disrespect for all that his father had stood for and the character of what his father had been, not only as king of Israel, but as the representative and ambassador of the very God of heaven. It is a very great statement of Absalom's disrespect for his father. Perhaps a few final notes about that thought as, the cha as chapter 16 concludes. Verse 23 tells us a bit about Ahithophel's counsel. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God, so was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. With that statement, we can gain a sense of why David was so concerned about Ahithophel's counsel. Apparently, he had a special gift, an ability, if you will, whereby he could prescribe the proper and right thing to accomplish the end or the objective that was intended. It is no wonder then that David prayed, O oh God, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Having looked briefly at the history of these two chapters, what might be some lessons as we use the remainder of our sermon time tonight, lessons that could help us to be better individuals representative of the great God of heaven. May I submit to you the following lessons would be worthy for us to consider. Returning first to chapter number 15, one of the first lessons to appreciate, even as we consider what occurred with regard to David and his son Absalom, might well be this one. The closest of friends can sometimes betray you. You and I had seen that perhaps with regard to the closeness of a family, 
One might never think that a son would betray his father. But yet it happened here. Here was David, a man no doubt by this point rather great in age. How much longer would it be before him, the throne would necessarily pass to another? Absalom couldn't be patient enough to wait that long. Rather, he was desirous and so much so of the kingship that he was willing to even chase his father from the throne. That very idea helps us see then that in our lives, perhaps that friend that was so very trustworthy and who would stand so nobly by your side, when ultimately the matter of money, perhaps the matter of a job position was at stake, then you might find yourself stabbed in the back. It can bring tears to our eyes. It can hurt deeply when we find ourselves betrayed by someone whom we thought was so close. The Bible portrays many who, them, who themselves found themselves in that position. Here we've only listed Ahithophel and Absalom. But might we notice as each one of them betrayed David and left him. What about Cain and Abel? Here were brothers in Genesis chapter 4 and Cain took the life of his brother. Killed him simply because God had respect to Abel's sacrifice and did not to Cain's. In other instances... We know that Jesus could see the hearts of all men, and yet, what about the others like Peter and Paul, or rather Peter and Andrew and James and John and all the others? Could they ever have thought that Judas would be the one to betray our Lord? You see, sometimes those closest can be the very ones who we recognize may ultimately have a part in the betrayal. How often has the Bible reminded us that there is ultimately no help to be found in man? In verse 3 of the 146th Psalm, we in fact read those very verbatim words. What about in past other passages such as the 118th Psalm, verses 8 and 9? In each of those instances, we see very plainly, straightforwardly, and powerfully words to this effect. No help is to be found in man. Might we also remember perhaps two other texts in which David himself made this, these statements. Psalm 60, verse 11. Psalm 108, verse 12. When we remember that the very person who wrote these psalms is the very one who was here betrayed by both Ahithophel and Absalom, and David himself could say, there is no help. Or in the words of that second text, in vain is the help of man. David wasn't saying that individuals cannot be of some aid or help to us. But in the final analysis, where can we go for the ultimate sustenance that will lead past the thoroughfare of death into what lies beyond? Man cannot offer any help for those things. Only God, only His Word, only the hope and the eye of faith can lead us to what lies beyond and what is in store for those that are God's children. Perhaps a second lesson. As we saw, Absalom's deceitful and subtle means to gain the hearts and favor of Israel... Notice the way that he went about it. He promised what they wanted to hear. He made deceitful promises that even if he were king, he would not be able to help every side accomplish everything. There is a sense in which you and I have become a bit disdainful of political promises, haven't we? It seems as though when election time nears, everyone is willing to promise everything to gain votes. When once the votes have been garnered and the political office has been won, 
It often is such that it's a more, far more difficult matter to answer all the promises than what it was to make them. Absalom promised everything that everyone wanted to hear. Do not we learn from that how evil it is to just openly promise and lie about things when all the while we know that it's not something that we can fulfill. The Bible warns on many occasions, especially in the Old Testament, I'd ask you to notice with me the 8th verse of Jeremiah chapter 9. A very potent and powerful text as it relates to this concept. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse number 8. We can see that the issues here, not only were those pressing in the days of David, here in the days of Jeremiah, the following things took place. Their tongue is as an arrow shot out. It speaketh deceit. It speaketh peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in heart he layeth his weight. Even in Jeremiah's days, there were those who spoke peaceably with their mouth, but inside, in the heart, it was full of deceit. They weren't speaking the truth. They weren't speaking what they honestly considered and felt. That same thought is echoed in Psalm 12, verse 2, as well as Psalm 28, verse number 3. In fact, the words are almost identical. May you and I learn that when we promise things or speak to others, may we do so with every intent of fullness to appreciate the grandness of what we say and the obligation that's ours to attempt to fulfill what we have uttered and that which we have promised. In fact, speak ye every man the truth with his neighbor, the marvelous refrain of both Zechariah 8.16 and Ephesians 4 verse 25. Those thoughts perhaps lead us to see yet a third lesson. In the third place, do not allow others to bring sin into our life. We understand that we are our own free moral agents in the sense that we are those who can make choices. Ultimately, others cannot force or make us sin. But oh, how strong the temptations can be. May we in wisdom... Allow the counsel of others to be taken very critically and analytically. And if that counsel leads to sin, do not fall prey to it. Notice again, Ahithophel advised Absalom, go into your father's concubines. That is, commit fornication. Absalom chose to do it. May you and I be far wiser when others give us advice, when others give us counsel, to think very critically about it and not just overwhelmingly follow it just because a person whom we have formerly trusted has so interestingly asked us to follow. Some other passages that help us appreciate the thought of that idea. In the 23rd verse of Galatians 5, in the very heart of the New Testament, Paul listed some beautiful things that should be characteristic of us as Christians. These marvelous fruits of the Spirit as they are called. One of them is temperance. That is self-control. A capability to analytically consider a matter and control one's propensities and desires in such a way not to fall prey to the sinful advice or character of another. In 2 Peter 1 verses 5 through 7, that famous listing of the Christian graces that we are to add to our life in abundance, amongst that list is temperance, meaning self-control. It seems Absalom didn't have nearly enough of that. In addition to these lessons, let us consider yet another. 
Some of these have certainly been dark and negative, but look at a bright one. Isn't it also true that there is a very special loyalty sometimes that exists between individuals? Perhaps there is that friend who would never betray you, who would stand behind you no matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstance. Though Itai was only recently a member, apparently, of Israel, he nonetheless professed absolute loyalty to David. I will, either in life or death, be where you are. That's a very, rather amazing statement, isn't it? And often in the Bible, when we encounter those who have that degree of allegiance within them, it can't help but touch us to the core of our being. What about that very remarkable and memorable scene in Ruth chapter 1? Here was a woman who had met with such tragedy in her life. Her husband was dead. Her sons were dead. Now their wives were still alive. The time came, though, when the famine back in her former land had passed, and she desired to return home. The two daughters-in-law had to make a decision. Orpah chose not to go with Ruth, but, or rather to go with Naomi, but Ruth would not be dissuaded. In fact, these are the memorable words that she uttered. Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God, and where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. She would not be dissuaded from following her mother-in-law. That wonder and that thought leads us to appreciate, perhaps to a degree, Atai's loyalty to David. Some other verses that remind us of the same. A man that would be friendly must show himself as such, Proverbs 18.24. If you and I are to be friends with others as perhaps they would wish us to be, we must have a great concern for their own loyalty and the degree of not turning aside from them. Those thoughts maybe lead us to two final lessons, and that will draw our study tonight to its conclusion. Also to be seen in these two chapters, a rather powerful lesson concerning prayer. As David reached near the summit of the Mount of Olives, he uttered that prayer concerning the counsel of Ahithophel. O Lord, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. David uttered that prayer. But isn't it amazing, not more than five verses later, he enlisted the service of Hushai to actually return to Jerusalem and aid in the actual overcoming of that council of Ahithophel. How do we understand that? Since David had prayed to God, why didn't he just drop it and turn it over to God completely and have nothing more to do with it? That teaches us a rather valiant lesson, doesn't it? When we pray unto God, we should appreciate we may very be the instruments by which that prayer can be answered. When we pray that others may be brought to the gospel, maybe we are the ones whom God will choose to use to bring that about. Just because we pray for something, that doesn't mean that's all that we should do about it. When there's opportunity and when there's advantage that we can send forth to its accomplishment, God would expect that of us. Some other passages that lead us to appreciate that. In Second Chronicles 7 verse 14, Solomon had just stood before the great temple that he had been able to construct for the God of heaven. And he had prayed that God would shower his blessings upon Israel. 
and that any time an Israelite had done disfavor or disobedience to God, he could turn toward that temple and God would forgive him. Might we now notice, though, God's reaction. Verse 14 of Second Chronicles 7. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Notice, God said, this blessing that I'll shower upon Israel in this place is conditional. Israel must turn from their, from their wicked way, repent of the sins in their life, and then, upon turning to me, I will shower them with blessing. Prayer, you see, isn't the only spiritual exercise, is it? There are some in our world who think that all that's necessary is to bow and pray, and one is saved, the church will be grand, everything is wonderful. But there is work that we all must do, isn't there? Praying alone, though that's an important spiritual exercise, is not the only one. Do we not read, for instance, in Titus 2 verse 14, that Christ has purchased unto himself a people zealous of good works. One chapter later in Titus 3 verse 14, Paul wrote, And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. We indeed must be a people not only who are prayerful, but ever diligent and zealous about good works in all the various forms that they may appear. And then finally, our last lesson for the evening. I chose to clo close it with this lesson, for it seems such a buoyant one. David, as he was leaving Jerusalem, fleeing again from his son, and he saw the ark of God being taken, he at that point stopped the proceeding immediately and ordered the ark to be taken back. What a great confidence he had in God's providence. God, if it be his will, will bring me back to see that ark. Do you and I trust God's providence that much? So trusting of His providence that we are well aware that the truth that it alone must stand supreme and that His will must, and I repeat, must be done. It is no wonder that our Savior prayed and taught His disciples to pray, Thy will be done in heaven as it is in earth. Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. That is an absolute confidence in God's providence. In Matthew 26, verses 39 to 42, we also appreciate that Jesus, even in Gethsemane, prayed, Not why will, but thine be done. That perhaps brings us to one last statement or one last text. Even the Apostle Paul in his life seemed to well understand the nature of God's providence. In Acts 21, verse 14, as he himself had just recently been shown by Agabus that the one whose belt I've taken will also be bound by the Gentiles. Paul, nonetheless, did not refuse to go to Jerusalem. He, in fact, said, Why make you my heart to weep and break? And he went on to say, The will of the Lord be done. May you and I have enough confidence and enough recognition of God's providence to always pray, Thy will be done. You and I are not as wise and as smart as He. May we understand in all things, though they may appear cloudy to us, that God's will is clear and that He will bring about that which is in His best interest for the accomplishment of His will upon this earth. Having looked at the 15th and 16th chapters of 2 Samuel tonight, they've prepared us seamlessly to look at chapter 17 and following beginning next Lord's Day evening. 
As we make ready for that, I'd invite you to read those chapters this week, and we'll look at the history as well as some lessons from those chapters as we come to this point next Sunday night. In concluding our lesson this evening, we have thus seen this interesting saga continue in the life of David as well as in the life of ancient Israel. And as we have looked more powerfully at it, we maybe have been shown the treachery of Absalom most clearly in this lesson. It will, by the way, though it precedes a bit our study tonight, come back to haunt him. He ultimately will be such that his life will be taken. And David will return in splendor and glory to the kingship of Israel. But some interesting things must take, play for, take place first. Tonight, in terms of God's providence, are you a faithful member of the body of our Lord? Have you obeyed in initial obedience and response the nature of what you must do to be added to the church, Acts 2.47? If you haven't, let tonight be the night with an humble character of petition in your heart and humility in your thinking. Come before God. He sent His Son to die for you. A plan of salvation was put in place for you. If you need to respond in a public way to it tonight, let that take place. If you have become a Christian, but you haven't lived the name, you've only been such that maybe only a day or two a week that name describes you. Every day it hasn't been your way of life. Come back to that first love. Let every day be the day that describes you as a member of the body of Christ. If we could pray for the forgiveness of sin, if we could pray for you to be strengthened, we'd be honored to do either one. Tonight, if you need to come forward, will you not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?